Gingivitis has been eroding the gum line of this great nation long enough. We can no longer be a nation indentured. Our very salivation is at stake. You let one ant stand up to us, then they all might stand up. And if they ever figure that out, there goes our way of life. Krusty Krab is unfair. Mr. Krabs is in there, standing at the concession, plotting his oppression. We can't just have a marching rally and then go have a beer. Life in this society, being at best, another bore. There remains the civic-minded, thrill-seeking, responsible females, only to overthrow the government, eliminate the money system, institute complete automation, and destroy the male sex. You picked the wrong femboy to mess with. Go to the Bureau of Free Love. It's not like a free love Soviet. Yeah, the bureaucracy, got, oh, you got to fill out this paperwork. Well, when do I get the free love? Not, you got to fill this up and you got to come back next Tuesday. You got to interview. One. It's a bureaucracy. But it's free love in the end. Uh, Lucario, this is spiritualist, possible just man voter. Mask and Lucas are in Japan. Hey, there's politics outside the U.S., you know. There's left-wing movements all over the world, okay? And I just think that's important. Sonic could be an accelerationist. In Jigglypuff, intersectional feminist queen. Oh, sure, let's see. I'm an elk, a mason, a communist. I'm the president of the Gay and Lesbian Alliance for some reason. There's nothing new about poverty. What is new is that we now have the techniques and the resources to get rid of poverty. The real question is whether we have the will. Welcome, welcome. This is your live edition of The Three Left Show, live in the studio. I'm your host, Dan Platt. This is The Three Lefts, your leftist reading hour that covers news and issues from a left-wing perspective, from the perspectives of anarchism, socialism, and ecology. These are The Three Lefts, promoting a post-capitalist future uh, with a commons economy and direct democracy uh, and other such uh, hot-button issues. This episode is one of the last few two-hour episodes I'm going to do uh, where I go through all of the extra content I've collected. This episode, this time, I'm wrapping up what I call the left-wing culture war, which maybe I'll get to the final conclusion that there is no inter-left culture war. Um, there is simply culture war between left and right or the three-way fight of left, liberal, and right. Um, but really, um, I like this one meme that I will put in the show notes or something like that, where it's kind of a food web-style graphic with uh, the words liberal, conservative, and libertarian, and they all have different arrows pointing at each other. You know, a liberal gets mugged, they become a conservative. Maybe you've heard this little trope before. Conservative gets medical bill, they turn into a liberal. Liberal has to pay taxes, they turn into a libertarian. Libertarian opposes, um, wants to go to war, so they become a conservative. The theme, or rather the message behind it, is that these three ideologies are actually all parts of the status quo and that the only way to kind of break free of that is to be a leftist like myself but that's just a little bit of you know um arrogance there so first i'm going to start the show uh, so uh, so i've covered left-wing culture war issues before usually talking about sexuality culture um other such things i'm returning to turf uh that's trans 
uh, not trans, yeah, trans exclusionary radical feminism or types of feminism that are actually very reactionary or types of leftism that become very reactionary. In the last episode, I kind of covered such uh, tropes with the ultra left where, you know, their takes are like for the sake of a multi polar world. We actually want, you know, in fighting U.S. imperialism and those evils, we actually want other states like China and Russia to be as powerful as they can be, to influence others and have a sphere of influence that counteracts, or at least to have some international competition so that there isn't just one hegemon ruling the world in that evil one-world government kind of way, um, instead of the good one-world government kind of way where it's democratic and, well, for the people, a.k.a. socialist. Um, or at least um, it loans money not based on the ability to pay back or what have you or other kinds of strings or giving up one's rights, but actually based on need. But I want to cover not a not give my take. Uh, so this weekend was the Oscars and there is this uh, incident where Will Smith slapped Chris Rock. And um, there's obviously, obviously lots of takes. It's uh, my my uh, social media feed has been inundated. So it's a nice little distraction from all of the things to worry about, whether it be that uh, the different we have high temperature spikes on both Arctic and Antarctic poles and uh, war and uh, and the general uh, incoming economic uh, crash that we're all just kind of tensing up, bracing for. So. But I'm not gonna. I'm not giving my take. This is I. I like this one leftist take that was. Uh, we can just enjoy things. It's a little bit of fun, you know, celebrity drama. But um, a lot of people are just reflecting, kind of how they feel about it based on their own experiences, right? My, uh, you know, a uh, old friend of mine, kind of like she was a, uh, as, when she was younger. She had cancer, so she was balding, and so this hits her. Like, yeah, she felt insulted. She would be insulted too. Um, others are reflecting by reflecting. I mean, like, you know, someone's saying like, I'm very upset. And you reflect back. It sounds like you're upset. I'm just going to relate what I, what came to my mind. First, this played in my head. Couldn't get in, huh? What you need is a tough hairdo. No one gets into the double S without a tough hairdo. I disagree. I saw a guy going in there and he was bald. I saw that guy. He wasn't bald. He had a shaved head. Shaved. That's a hairdo. Case closed. So the joke there is that, um, you know, I look at uh, Jada Smith and I see someone with a shaved head and shaved, not balding. Perhaps Chris Rock as a roaster, someone roasting the front row, the people who are actually going to get the awards. You made a crack with like, oh, shaved head. What's what else has a shaved head? Uh, a Marine. So G.I. Jane. Um, but otherwise, uh, that's my interpretation. The other side of it is the other thing I thought of that came to mind immediately was that, hey, Chris Rock actually made a movie about black women's hair. It's called Good Hair. Here's the trailer for it. What's your definition of good hair? Something that looks relaxed and nice. If your hair is relaxed, white people are relaxed. If your hair is nappy, they're not happy. This October, Chris Rock will take you back to your roots. Just yesterday, my daughter came into the house and said, Daddy, how come I don't have good hair? I wonder how she came up with that idea. Within the black community, if you have good hair, you're prettier or better than. The lighter, the brighter, the better. They want to go like this, like Farrah Fawcett. There's so many pressures to straighten your hair. Look at my ring, still there. <laughs> 
Relax is the chemical that will take a black woman's hair from this and change it into this. It's kind of like a torture session. Could you tell us how dangerous Relaxer is? Sodium hydroxide will burn through your skin. So that can's got a good turn. This whole side was yes. burnt off. And that's how the asymmetrical look came in with salt pepper. So you saying your hair's addicted to relaxer? I am on the creamy crack. Creamy crack. So what's in your hair now? This is a weave. This is a weave. Two pieces here. You know, like extensions. Like, like that. The black hair business is a $9 billion business. One of these can run you $5,000. Well, I have a layaway plan. So you can lay away the wigs. That's right. Have you ever put your hand through a black woman's hair? Hell no, not a black woman. You just don't touch it. Do not touch my wig. Does your wife let you touch her hair? The question is, do I let her touch mine? Weave sex is a little awkward. What do you do? I guess That was very sharpened, by the way. This is a 7,000-pound batch of relaxers. This will last Prince about a month. Get ready to go over yeah. the world. Right now, I have Indian hair. Human hair is India's biggest export. Can you 10 inches to 40? 10 inches and better. Yes. It's like porno. Okay, so I'll stop it there. Just 10 more seconds with a little joke about him uh, be, not being able... Wigs are expensive, but he can't sell them on the street. Or, or rather, it's natural black women's hair. Like, uh, I did not watch the whole thing, or maybe I watched the second half of it. I kind of forget, but I watched enough of it. It was kind of like when I shop for books where I read the intro and then the last chapter. You know, just give me the the sandwich, the rather the bookends. The beginning where they give their first thesis and then the conclusion, like, okay, what's the point of this? Uh, where do we go from here? You know, because a lot of books, the non-prop, uh, non-fiction ones, are like, you know talking about a problem like and sometimes i already know about the problem okay what they want to do about the problem so i skipped to the end and in the end uh, he ends the movie with like you know a um fun fun little thing where it's like you know i want my daughters to grow up valued for the content of the character and not the content of their what's on their head so i'm just a little having a little fun like many others uh but also very serious discussion um or trying to rationalize an irrational act uh, which is not so fun um, or needed, but what have you. So I just want to have some fun with that before I go into the more unfun topic of TERFs and other such reactionaries that poses leftists. So to the public, it kind of looks like an interleft rivalry thing, or at least this is how I see it. But I'll get to the point where it, it actually does affect left-wing politics uh, in the second half as I talk about the Greens. And I will have a kind of major point at the end where i kind of wrap things up and not leave things mm, open-ended like i sort of did where um when i did an ep- uh, episodes of clip shows of youtube videos and along with like the left needs to unite the left needs to be well organized why is it splitting hairs over various issues um when we're so not alone there are masses of us and then I, you know, I included a video where someone explains like, yeah, but, you know, what about these people who are, say, anti-sex work or anti-trans um, rights or anti-trans people in the first place, don't even recognize them as existing, and that these people should not be allowed in our movements or what have you because they are pretty much toxic. And But I haven't gone deep into it. So this will be the episode where I finally go deep into it and do a last hurrah on this topic. So first, a general outline. Um, it'll be too long to read all of this. I think the first half is how far I got before I'm like, okay, this is, mm, is going to wrap it. I need to wrap, I want to wrap this up. But anyway, this is from Vox. Uh, I don't love Vox as a source for news and stuff, but you know what? It's fine, especially on these social issues uh, and cultural things. So 
So uh, first, a little premises from me that culture is a real thing. Like when something is culturally constructed, we still live it. It is still real to us uh, uh, just because it's like, oh, it's um, saying something is socially constructed is not the same as saying it's fake or unreal. Just as it's like there's maybe some hyper reality to it, like the people couldn't believe that, like, you know, Will Smith is like acting on a scene from a movie and uh, or look like something that was staged. And it's like, is this real? Is this not real? We can't tell. It's hyper reality. It's hyper real. So the rise of anti-trans radical, in quotes, feminists explained. This is just a general explainer, a very broad article, which goes pretty deep. Known as TERFs, trans-exclusionary radical feminist groups are working with conservatives to push their anti-trans agenda. Not a very po- not a positive article, of course, uh, positive towards them. I will read some things from their perspective just to get it across. You know, it's not, this isn't just a TERF bashing hour, but whatever. No apologies. Written by Caitlin Burns. So, um, okay, first, a, this is a, it goes through a court case that's pretty emblematic of, of what's going on, uh, in the world, because this does affect real people. This isn't just on online spaces where people argue about this. It does affect real people's lives on many fronts. So Amy Steffens, uh, had been working in funeral services for 20 years, nearly six of which were at Harris Funeral Homes when she came out to her boss as transgender. She had known since she was five years old that she was a girl and had been living as a woman outside of work for some time. Though she loved her job at Harris, where she had worked her way up from apprentice to funeral director, she felt she had to hide who she was there until she couldn't any longer. In 2013, she gave the funeral home's owner, Thomas Rost, a note that she also shared with friends and colleagues, quoting her, quoting it. I realize that some of you may have some trouble understanding this. In truth, I have had to live with it every day of my life, and even I do not fully understand it myself. As distressing as this is sure to be friends and some of my family, I need to do this for myself and for my own peace of mind and to end the agony in my soul. After he read the note, Ross simply said, okay, and then fired Stephens two weeks later. Ross told her that it was not going to work out. Why? You can't have a woman funeral director let's see stefan sued claiming her dismissal was discrimination based on the basis of her sex setting off a flurry of legal activity according to court documents ross testified that he fired stefan's because quote she was no longer going to represent herself as a man she wanted to dress as a woman Last March, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in her favor, quoting it, that decision. It is analytically impossible to fire an employee based on that employee's status as a transgender person without being motivated, at least in part, by the employee's sex. The court said in its decision, an employer cannot discriminate on the basis of transgender status out imposing its stereotypical notions of how sexual organs and gender identity ought to align. Harris Funeral Homes appealed to the Supreme Court, which took up the case and will hear oral arguments October 8th, which this is back in 2019. This was published, by the way. Sorry, I didn't get that out earlier. So I may need to put uh, in the show notes uh, what the result of that decision was. But maybe that's what really got the last few years of turfism up and because there was a court case that actually said 
that a transgender person is discriminated against based on sex, and that's these are sexual sex-based rights, as the trans people put it, uh, or the gender critical, because it's about sex, not gender. You know, you know, women are discriminated based on sex, not gender, and thus this the courts have ruled, or at least one court did, that as as I read, they're discriminated based on sex. So how anti-trans radical feminist groups could affect the outcome of this case. In recent weeks, a flurry of amicus briefs have been filed in the case. Um, I'm sorry, sorry, it's listing out the, the, the company's name, Harris Funeral Homes versus EEOC and e- Amy Steffens. Major medical organizations, advocacy groups, and legal es- experts have weighed in mostly in favor of allowing trans people to be free of discrimination at work. Meanwhile, a slew of conservative and religious groups have claimed the right to fire anyone for being trans because they love freedom. <laughs> Even President Trump's Department of Justice fired, filed a brief in August arguing, in part, that Steffens was fired by Harris Funeral Homes not for her gender identity, but because she refused to follow her employer's dress code, which requires men, and by quoting quote-unquote men, the DOJ means men of biological sex to wear a suit with pants and women to wear a dress or a skirt, which is kind of the problem in the first place, isn't it? The ACLU attorneys representing Stephens in turn argue that their client was fired because Stephens failed to perform the sex role her employer expected of her, violating the legal precedent established in the 1989 case Prince Waterhouse versus Hopkins. So in that case, Anne Hopkins was denied promotions and a partnership because she didn't look, dress, or behave in the stereotypical feminine manner. She was not feminine enough for her sex, being a woman. Her bosses instructed her to wear more makeup and skirts to work in order to get the promotion. The court sided with Hopkins establishing a legal standard for sex stereotyping that has fundamentally transformed the workplace for women for the past 30 years. That's about when my mother stopped wearing shoulder pads on her work jackets. Not quite. It was more mid-90s. But it started the ball rolling of of, of uh, women not having to look more masculine to work in an office uh, and be taken uh, and be treated as equals. So what I'm outlining here is that what's happening is the eroding of gender roles based on sex. Perhaps gender roles can still exist, you know, femininity and masculinity, but what is being disentangled here is that they are no longer, well, either matter or not useful for, you know, it's, it's, it's a breakdown of patriarchal values, which is a good thing. But it basically, it's, it's, it's disjointing sex and gender and gender roles and, and particularly eroding the gender roles. So now that precedent is being put to the test. And joining the Trump administration and conservatives in the fight over sex-based discrimination and stereotypes are several somewhat unexpected allies, so-called radical feminist groups with long records of opposing the rights of transgender people. In their amicus brief to the Supreme Court, the Women's Liberation Front, or WOLF, writes simply, Amy Steffens is a man. He wanted to wear a skirt while at work, and his, quote, gender identity argument is an ideology that dictates that people who wear skirts must be women, precisely the type of sex stereotyping forbidden by Price Waterhouse. Doesn't that sound ass backwards? I don't know. 
Groups like Wolf are commonly referred to as transclusionary radical feminist turfs. Or, yes, they alternate among several theories that all claim that trans women are really men who are the ultimate oppressors of women. Their theories are that men are the ultimate oppressors of women, right? To above all others or because all the others aren't as important. Most of their ideas, like that trans women are a threat to cisgender women's safety, are based on cherry-picked cases of horrific behavior by a small number of trans people. Above all else, their ideology doesn't allow for trans people to have self-definition or any autonomy over their gender expression. Keep that in mind. And why that this you know line of thinking is not really you know not pro freedom, not pro fun. By that I mean human happiness. It's like ultimately that is why autonomy is important. Se- uh, quoting them, uh, sex is grounded in materiality, whereas gender identity is simply an ideology that has no grounding in science. Wolf told Vox in a statement. The redefinition of the word sex to mean gender identity would have myriad harmful effects on women and girls, and women and girls is a, as a distinct category deserve civil rights protections. Uh, this is all of their literature, uh, which will be mentioned later. At least it's paraphrasing. The key to understanding why a self-proclaimed radical feminist group would side with conservatives arguing for the right to force cisgender women into skirts at work is to understand who TERFs are and what they've been up to the past 50 years. Because now, under the Trump administration, well, and Biden, whatever, uh, and a conservative majority Supreme Court, their alliance with these far-right groups could have lasting widespread consequences for trans civil rights and for the rights of women in general. So here's a primer. Online roots of the term turf originated in the late aughts, that's 2000s, but grew out of the 1970s radical feminist circles after it became apparent that there needed to be a term to separate those radical feminists who support trans women and those who don't. Many anti-trans feminists today claim as a sl- it's a slur, despite what many see as an accurate description of their beliefs. They now prefer to call themselves gender critical, a euphemism akin to white supremacists calling themselves race realists. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want a full, like, pseudo documentary about gender critical, the YouTube, uh, YouTuber ContraPoints has done lots of content on these subjects and is a great source for that. In the early 70s, groups of what would now be called gender critical feminists threatened violence against many trans women who dared exist in women's and lesbian spaces. For example, because they said that their, you know, presence there was like an act of violence as well you know a man in a woman's space this is what you know what they say about like women need to be this distinct category and it needs to be a sex-based category and so on for example trans women trans woman beth elliott who was at the 1973 west coast lesbian feminist conference to perform with her lesbian band was ridiculed on stage and had her existence protest tested in 79 radical feminist janice raymond a professor at the university of massachusetts wrote the defining work of the turf movement which was called transsexual empire the making of the she-male in which he argued that transsexualism should be morally mandated should be morally mandated out of existence mainly by restricting access to transition care which is a political position of the right soon after she wrote another paper this one published for the government-funded Health and Human Services-linked National Center for Healthcare Technology. The Reagan administration cut off Medicare and private health insurance coverage for transition-related care. You know, when the right was in power or is in power, they kind of get what they want. Or they have a, a empathetic ear.
After those early flashpoints, the dispute between trans people and gender-critical folks simmered for the next 20 years. One exception was the high-profile conflicts at the Michigan Women's Folk Festival, or Mitch, Mitch Fest, which caught plenty of attention. In the 90s and early aughts, pro-trans festival attendees organized a Camp Trans, a space specifically welcoming trans women who were otherwise banned from attending the event. The two groups clashed for a number of years until more artists and organizations boycotted Mitch Fest and organizers chose to end the event in 2015. Now reading this, this suggests that the Michigan Women's Folk Festival didn't allow men in at all. So, so much for having an inclusive, building an inclusive society. Yeah, you know, women's only spaces for women's safety, you know, so on, so on. Not against it, but it does kind of, well... Can't say it puts me off because, you know, I never say like this space is only for men unless it's me and my guy friends and we're out out on a camping trip and that's a man only space. But that's not a publicly organized thing. Okay, so however, in the past several years, TERFs have found new life and fostered fertile recruiting ground in many online spaces, you know, post Gamergate and working out of the skeptic movement, whether Let's see, give some, let's see, recent. The recent wave grew out of the 2000 skeptic movement. There's a lot of different explanation. So um, TERFs usually use a fear of sexual assault. And at the end of the day, as a, if you can't tell so far, they are reactionary and, invent, and at its core, actually anti-women. Let's see if I can skip to the part that explains that. They treat trans women's predators and trans men as victims of the patriarchy. Let's go through that part. Uh, they use fear as a weapon against trans women, fear of sexual assaults. They, um, let's see, gender-critical propaganda is almost entirely focused on the supposed depravity of trans women, citing rare cases to paint them as threats, which the right also does too, as they did to um, all gay, lesbian, and other communities and basically any non-conforming community. Tourists often point to the case of Karen White. White was in prison for sexual assault when she came out as a trans woman and applied to a transfer to a women's one. Once there, she allegedly raped several other fellow prisoners before she was eventually caught. Prison officials later admitted that they did not follow existing safeguarding procedures in granting the transfer. As a rape survivor myself, I find White detestable and am outraged that prison officials were so lax with their procedures and allowed White access to a vulnerable population. Where I differ from gender-critical feminists is I don't agree that White is representative of all or any trans women. Gender-critical feminists essentially believe the existence of trans women's penis stuff in a woman's space represents an automatic risk of rape. These are how stereotypes are wet and weaponized against marginalized groups. Gillian Brandstetter, media relations manager at the National Center for Transgender Equity. Oh, sorry, it's equality. Told Vox, who was interviewed, given transgender people's relatively recent rise to public life and the fact that many people still don't know a transgender person who are very vulnerable to being mischaracterized, to being marginalized, and to being drowned out by dog whistles. Many gender-critical feminists refuse to contend with the fact that 47% of trans women have been victims of sexual assault in their lives. Almost half. Instead of questioning the survey methods used to reach the conclusion, however, many trans people don't see how such questioning is any different from cis men who claim women are falsely accusing men of rape in ever larger numbers. 
The supposed concern for cis women and children has become the primary method for radicalizing others to being gender critical. Similar to how Islamophobes play up threats of gang rape by white, of white women by Muslim men, or white supremacists have historically paint, painted black men as sexual threats to justify segregation, or say sex segregation or gender segregation in our spaces or bathrooms. I'm adding that. Defending the purity of white womanhood has always been a significant axis of common bigotries, and gender-critical feminism operates in the same fashion. A type of stranger danger drilled into the heads of women and girls from a young age, anti-trans feminists can easily paint the other as a constant sexual threat, despite the fact that studies have repeatedly shown that women are most likely to be assaulted by someone they already know. So, um, let's see, online turfism infiltrates academia and then often manifests into more harassment. Um, so... Uh, groups like Wolf may have liberation in their name, but they have ultra-conservative ties, and it goes through those. And it doesn't have much traction in the U.S., but it definitely does in the U.K. I'll be hitting on that later. Here we go. Conservative groups, in turn, have made a conscious decision to use feminist language and framing to oppose trans rights, which is how we ended up some of the most vehemently anti-woman politicians in the House voting against the Violence Against Women Act in the name protecting women and girls. This unholy alliance, backed up with academic scholarship written by TERFs, could end up having devastating consequences to the standing of women and girls in the U.S. and across the globe. In the Supreme Court case, Wolf is taking the side that claims employers have the right to mandate that women wear skirts by arguing that Amy Steffens believes that only women can wear skirts. If Wolf truly believes that the abolition of gender, as it claims, it would be petitioning to allow Steffens to present at work in whatever gender she wishes without risk of being fired. Wolf's argument reveals the, the big gender-critical lie. It's more important than TERFs to put cis women in a stricter box and enforce sex-based dress codes than it is to give trans women equal employment rights. And if TERFs, TERFs prevail, then all women and non-binary people lose. Kate, Caitlin Burns is a freelance journalist based in D.C., she was the first openly transgender Capitol Hill reporter in U.S. history. Her other work can be seen in the Washington Post, Teen Vogue, Vice, and others. The next section of this is to basically kind of continue with this line of thinking, a line of attack, whatever, line of analysis. With this piece, um, which reflects on something that happened last year, or at least an online kerfuffle argument that occurred last year, on the line, on pretty much online spaces only, but it is one of the, it's basically where the culture war is being fought. And we can obviously have that, um, I kind of roll my eyes whenever I see memes or someone talk about how the like, culture war is just a distraction from the, well, the class war. Certainly, but it's also kind of another battlefield where things play out. And uh, you don't want to give any of that up, but it's also... I don't see it mutually exclusive to fight things on a cultural or because really we're not fighting on a cultural level le level. As I mentioned, um, the case and protecting women's sex based rights or transgender rights, these are material economic things. We're, we're actually talking about worker rights. And if we're going to protect worker rights, we need to protect everyone's rights. Otherwise, it's not much of a leftism, is it? 
And to drive that point on, um, here is a piece from, it's called, the blog is called The Black Trillium and is written by a Simon McNeil. Published May 26, 2021, and I'll just go right into it. The title is Nazis, Puritines, and Accessibility, The Pointless Kink at Pride Discourse. I'm I'm self-censoring here, but basically I'm going to be using the words uh, kink and sexuality at the very least. So here's one for the terminally online. Before we go forward, I want to position my stakes in this argument. I'm pretty open on this blog about being bisexual. I mean, for the 16 reviews I wrote in 2021, seven have either featured a textually queer protagonist or created by a queer artist or both. But I'm also a parent, and this is why four of the 16 2021 reviews have been of children's media. And as such, I am a cause of kids Kids at Pride Parades, as prior to COVID anyway, I regularly brought my daughter to Pride. So I don't know if you remember, if you don't, uh, here's the background. Um, last year, um, there was a online debate between various quote-unquote factions or peoples on the left about allowing kids at Pride Parades. Why would this be something to discuss? Well, because at Pride Parades, people are can be a vote. Well, they evoke their sexuality or they express their sexuality, not literally having it or what have you, or just, you know, just wearing less clothes, being dressing in a promiscuous way, you know, or basically it's an argument about, well, Puritan values versus libertine values. And where's the line that's appropriate for having kids around? It can be argued by the most regressive that someone just being outside and saying, I'm gay is a stretch too far for the kids. Kids should not be exposed to these identities, whether it be sexual, gender identities, or any kind, because they all invoke these questions about, well, my sexuality or my gender or my place in society. <laughs> Am I nonconforming? It's all in someone. And you don't have to be nonconforming to kind of, to well, but, but it is a nonconforming thing to be in public and, not being fully clothed, or wearing a bikini, what have you. Now another important question is why I want to bring my daughter to Pride Parades. And the answer to that is because I want her to grow up with a broad understanding of the ways love and enjoyment of others can manifest. I want to raise a child who understands these things well so that she can make healthy choices about her own life that will forward her happiness. I'm not bringing my daughter to Pride just for a parade with a bunch of rainbow floats, though she does appreciate those. Pride parades are political actions. In fact, the bank-sponsored displays, mainstream political parties, marching for publicity, and worst of all, uniformed authority figures are the are the parts of Pride that I have the least time for. On the other hand, I supported the 2016 BLM action at Pride in Toronto. I also supported the right of QAIA to march in Toronto Pride parades and was aghast at the municipal interference to silence them. There has been never been a time that pride parades were not fundamentally political actions. Just assume that that uh, Q Qua AIA is just some radical trans group, perhaps. I don't. I forget which. Let's see. They pride parades are in fact fundamentally political actions in the sites of political struggle. And depoliticizing things is something capitalism loves because you know you can't really make money if things are political. And that's why whenever someone complains about things being too political or partisan these days. All I hear, well, it's not all I hear, but one of the thoughts that runs from my head, along with a groan, is 
what are you really complaining about? Like you're not making, you could be making more money if people just, uh, you know, simmer down and shut up. You know, what was really wrong here? Except the profitability, it hurts profitability or something. We're all, we're all not on the same consumerist page. I'm just spitting here. So with that in mind, we should not be surprised to see bigots attempting to use pride as, as this vague notion of an event as a site of political struggle now. But I do think it's important to understand who is doing this and why. Uh, hint, it's, it's Nazis. In 2020, 4chan Nazis got some attention for Operation Pridefall, a concerted effort by far-right participants of that hellish site to alienate the general public from the queer community. It's significant to note that children were a perfect preferred target, one participant said. TikTok, convince any Gen Z sibling or relatives to do some kind of crappy gesture, charade, or some kind of uh, or horror dance, and then add queer critical captions on top of it and repost. The general operating procedure for Pridefall was to post anti-LGBTQ memes and generally do as much as possible to shift discourse such to present queer people, specifically participating in Pride Month activities, negatively. And wouldn't you know it, but this has become a predominant image shared around the web May 2021, just in time for Pride Month. And it's an image of three guys uh, basically doing puppy play, and a girl is kind of like petting one of them, or it's like, like interacting with them. So let's be clear about a few realities in this picture. The kinksters, because they are doing something kinky, in it are not touching the girl, menacing her, or causing her any discomfort. The girl in the picture is obviously happy to be there. She's got a flag and several strings of beads on. She's smiling and reaching out to pat the dog man as if it were a puppy. He's acting like a dog. This isn't sexual. It's play. And frankly, it's just play. And frankly, this man's dressed in no more revealing a manner than any number of guys you might encounter on a beach or at a swimming pool. Because, you know, they're, they're, they're wearing harnesses and briefs. Basically the same amounts of swim trunks. So it's something of a mistake to assume that kink is just sex. As many people have pointed out, there is a fair number of asexual people who participate in kink. So, by the way, online there were these arguments at the time about, um, like, the worst of it was, like, comparing this to someone masturbating in front of a child on a bus or something and saying, like, you want to allow this, like, um, or, or rather, or, or the worst of it was somebody is thinking sexual thoughts to themselves that aren't related to children in any way, but, like, say, whatever kink they're doing. And just doing that around children is, like, perverted. And it's all about perverts. They're all perverts. Like, what, what is this? The 50s? Got to watch out for the perverts, but that's exactly how the trans and the swerfs kind of talk about. But really, as this person points out, uh, when it came to, you know, all these online spaces, they're, they're all, you, know, you can follow them back to, trace them back to neo-Nazis. Uh, people within kink communities refer to their games as scenes, and there is certainly an element of theatricality to, the, to those, some of these scenes. Uh, people engaged in kink might and derivingly derive sexual pleasure from their activities, but they're definitely either putting on a show or playing games every time, regardless of if there is any sexual pleasure in it, such kink and is performative and pleasure and playful pleasure, playful pleasure that need not have anything what to do, whatever to do with sex. And it's that performative and playful enjoyment that is being displayed in pride or in public. These three very good boys are playing dog. The little girl who looks to be around the right age for play acting 
is obviously enjoying the scene. Nobody's boundaries are being violated. Nobody is being compelled to do anything. Nobody in the scene is making use of a power differential to impose upon another outside the bounds of adult affirmative consent. But for Nazis, this photo provides great mimetic father for a think-of-the-children narrative that is divorced from reality and instead cleaves directly to the revulsions of the straits for the queer. Nazis using manipulative framing of pictures like this is the core of this awful discourse. And honestly, it's discourse in May of 2021, but it, it, you can, you know, it can repeat ad nauseum, such as the culture war. So, and honestly, we should be reminding any concern trolls pumping up that they're carrying water for Nazis. They can go to hell. And concern trolls just don't appear online. You know, any uh, politician who does a press conference about uh, safety of children, the safety of our communities, a little bit of law and order needed, it, it's all a type of concern trolling to me. Especially because cause it's, it's, it's a concern troll. is like real concern would be about the economic depravity of our times or uh, our war machine or climate change. That's not concern trolling to me when, when you're concerned about those things. Concerned about sexual violence, real sexual violence, not cherry-picked sexual violence. But actual trends or what the stats bear out as being the, the most, the biggest kind. So anyway. There's a fair bit of hand-wringing about kids today who don't know how we all struggled. But, um, oh, sorry, sorry, let me go back. So let's talk about the kids. The phrase puritine has been tossed around for the last few weeks. This is a mythical child who is incensed that their Internet experience includes adults who sometimes talk about sex. They share some explicit information or are just, in general, sexual beings. Note, the puritine isn't a person responding against sexual harassment, but is rather somebody who proactively attempts to censor third parties for engaging in any sexualized behavior in a digital public space. But of course, such puritan value uh, peoples, puritans, are all, all about making sure there's no sexualized content in any public space. So there's a fair bit of hand-wringing about kids today who don't know how we all struggled, but the reality is that these puritines are really two separate phenomena. One, overly sensitive adolescents, and two, Nazis pretended to be such overly sensitive adolescents. The solution to both is the same. Block, disengage, and if they fall into making overtly bigoted statements, report them. There is nothing to be gained from arguing with children. There is even less to be gained from arguing with 4chan Nazis. The former is not yet at the point where they should have any say in how adults at an adult event comport themselves. The latter should be suffocated under the weight of deafening silence. Now for all the rest. There are also various concern trolls and online entertainers who make money off of inserting themselves into arguments. None of these people should be taken seriously for the simple reason that none of these people have any actual stakes in the argument. They're just in it for the clicks, and I will not mention who these people are, because hate clicks are clicks too. Needless to say, there's never a good reason to engage with a Twitch debater. Now this brought mind, um, now an aside for me, this brought to mind something I wrote a note here. Is a success, this is a question I wrote. Does a successful left tuber have a stake in the socialist project. So let me walk back what I, why I asked this question. So uh, this writer, uh, Simon, mentions that 
Twitch debaters or whatever side of politics they're on don't really have stakes because they are entertainers first and foremost. They, the honest ones, will handily admit this. Um, and they say, look, I'm here to entertain. It is part of, you know, I'm not saying I'm doing praxis, though. I do political advocacy, and that is something that is real and effective, politically speaking. You know, I have a community of a few dozen people um, or hundreds, and I, I politically engage with them in conversations, funny or entertaining, what have you, but uh, it still counts as advocacy or it becomes advocacy certain times where it gets beyond just joking about something and being serious. But when it comes to just Twitch debating, it is entertainment, and I see it purely as that, and it's not really political advocacy at a certain point because it's more the act of entertaining and have being a scene and playing around is fun, but is sort of meant, I should say, it's separate from being an activist. And so I ask that I restate the question, does a successful left tuber or left Twitch streamer have a stake in the socialist project? You know, if they're just doing entertainment, um, do they have a stake in the same way that this, you know, person says that, look, a teenager can be really offended or not just offended, but like uncomfortable because they're in public spaces and, well, they're not 18 yet. So really, like when a site says this is for 18 plus, they should follow that rule. But then there's spaces like on certain boards or Tumblr where it's all ages. There's no age restriction, though, of course, there are age-restricted buttons and stuff. Uh, like, say, if you go to – but, like, you know, they, they, you know the, the, the uh, complaint, whether it be real or not, is uh, let's say these overly sensitive or sensitive adolescents are like, all these adults are bringing in their sexuality into spaces where I just want to be a normal teenager and not really think about sex all the time. Because guess what? That's a stereotype, too. So anyway, what about accessibility, though? This isn't a thing. I know a fair number of asexual people. As I said, a few of them are into kink. But basically, the argument is like this makes if you make spaces sexualized, you're basically making them inaccessible, inaccessible to those who are not sexual, like the asexual or teenagers or kids. So the first, let's see. The vast majority aren't interested in sex for themselves, but are perfectly happy to see others getting it. The first, uh, the few sex revolts asexual people I know probably wouldn't ever be interested in attending a pride parade in the first place. See, the push to make pride child friendly is just garden variety neoliberalism. The somatic signifiers of pride are being decoupled from their original use and repackaged as commodities to sell, cute, cute t-shirts and rainbow flags. This is what led to the discomfort that mainstream society had when... Actual queer uh, AIA people and with BLM, uh, with BLM at Pride, divisive politics at a parade. Where's my fainting couch? This sense is engendered that Pride must be for everyone, and that means sanding down all the rough bits. The leather leather daddies are welcome too, as long as they leave the harness at home. After all, these there are children in the audience who might ask questions. The assimilationist wants pride to be an affirmation that society is now okay with the gays. And if people do things that interfere with that, if people express their diverse, strange desires as diverse and as strange, that would put a lie to that affirmation. It would show that, in fact, society is not yet okay with the gays. Society is okay with the abstract idea 
that some people have otherwise heteronormative relationships with people of their own gender. But please don't be weird about it. And of course, don't be weird about it is defined with a particularly cis-het normative lens. Two men kissing is allowable. We can pretend that one is the girl in the relationship. But drag queens or heaven forbid trans women must be rendered indivisible. If they can't pass, they can't participate. After all, the bounds between kink and play never really existed. So the drag queen who lives entirely in theater, entirely in the domain of play, is thus a figure of fear and disgust. And the transphobes make no distinction between the drag queen and the trans woman, who they are desperate to pathologize, to flatten to a deviancy. The question of kink at Pride is certainly one of access. Uh, but it's one that prefers the access of people like me, heteronormative, passable queers, who might who bring their kids for the party over the people who still face real obstacles to access everywhere else. Now I need to be clear. I have never seen the risk that my child might see a person in a state of undress or in a state of unusual dress as anything even remotely resembling a barrier of access to pride parades. But remember, when I describe pride as a site of political conflict, I know whose side I'm on here. And the access of trans women and leather daddies is not something that should be denied so that people who already have perfectly reasonable access to the world can continue to glide about with minimal resistance. I reject the premise that the presence of kink, quote unquote, denies access to parents or children. But even if it did, as I said about science fiction conventions before, universal communities don't exist. The Pride Parade is a moment of explicitly political direct action to show that queer people in all our beautiful and strange diversity exist. And the access of those who will not pass as normal should be preferred. It is their parade first and foremost. If that means a few sex-discomforted teens feel like they can't access it, then that's a price to pay. One influential online personality argued that Pride should be as open as possible to help normalize queer desire. This guy is in much the same boat as me, in that he's so normal presenting, I didn't actually realize he wasn't straight. This personality is, as usual, dead wrong. Forget respectability. Coddling normies doesn't move the struggle for liberation. Rights aren't granted. They are taken. Now, this gets to my last point. A kinkster I know pointed out that this whole argument was silly because they're going to turn up in March anyway. They'll come out with their harnesses, cuffs and collars. They'll come out with their dog masks, rings affixed around their chains. And it won't matter if some children on Twitter don't think they should be there because of this. Drag queens or whatever know their right to present as they do has nothing to do with permission. Something is a right when it cannot be taken from you. If it's a conditional acceptance extended as long as you're not weird about it, then it isn't a right. The Pride March has always been about creating a right. The old phrase is, we're here, we're queer, get used to it. Not, we're here, we're queer, please like us. It is a show of force, a presentation that some strangeness will not be surrendered. If you want an all-ages, de-sexed private event, make your own. But in the meantime, don't expect you will stop any of the non-conforming from marching. So that was uh, Simon... Simon McNeil, author, 
I guess, I don't know if it's a book or it's just his blog, Black Trillium. So there, I like that a lot. Kind of gets to the heart, not gets to the heart of a bunch of things. Hopefully it wasn't too much saying the word, the S word there a lot. But obviously being transgressive. Oh, that was another little joke I'll end the hour with. When I, <laughs> someone was being really edgy and I said like, uh, and it was, a, and I think it was a trans woman or something. And I, and I said like, wow, so transgressive. And somebody thought, they didn't know, they probably never, and it was likely some type of teen who had never read or seen the word transgressive before. And they thought I was like combining trans with aggressive. And they were like, what did you just say? And, you know, because it would be like an insult kind of thing, like, whoa, transgressive much. Oh, you know, these trans women, they're all so edgy and, uh, you know, uh, angry. They're all, they're all so angry. No, transgressive means transgress to dra- to transgress on norms. <laughs> um, a formative book in my college years was um, that I have, I have is uh, "Teaching to Transgress" by Bell Hooks. I don't have other Bell Hooks works, but obviously she's a great writer and she's often uh, shared. Good. So that wraps up the first hour of the show. This has been the three lefts. I will see you on in the other side of the hour. I, I could start early. So in the second half, I'm going to cover trans, turfs in the Green Party, and UK.
Not knowing what it's like to feel alive If I died, would I be rid of my senses? Or will it retain trapped within my corpse in stasis? If I died, would I be a woman in heaven? Or would I fall asleep? Not knowing what it's like to feel Okay, welcome back to the second hour of the Three Left Show. I'm your host, Daniel Platt. I'll start the second hour by talking a little bit about what I did today. I helped facilitate a discussion. Um, let's see, let's start from the beginning. There's a general consensus among society on, on all levels and um, persuasions that 
teaching to the test, standardized testing, bad, not working, not preparing kids for the future. That our um, Prussian system of regimented um, factory-type schooling is not actually a good education. Education is separate from schooling, uh, that we need an education system that is less like, quote-unquote, school, something where you're in classes and team, whatever. I, I don't want to get into all that. But, you know, there were protests against standardized testing and whatever, and there was an opt-out movement that was mostly on the right, unfortunately. I think it could have been more widespread, but it was kind of like once the right starts doing something, like it doesn't make sense, uh, well, it doesn't feel right. I don't know what to, for liberals and leftists to do it too, uh, but it's usually because they, the reason they do something that we might do um Mostly because we don't do it because we're not prepared, you know, or, or the movement isn't built. It's, it's an odd thing. Can't really get into it because I'm not prepared to talk about it. What I am prepared to talk about is that we need a education system that uses a more uh, not experience based, what is a performative based assessment. But anyway, uh, this is uh, something that has has been carried up to the state level, in New York, here in New York. The, uh, we have the, basically our education standards are governed and, and ruled over by a body called the Board of Regents. Uh, it's cause, you know, when you graduate, you get a Regents diploma and you take the Regents tests to basically graduate. And so in the last, uh, this, this was a process that was supposed to start in 2020, um, their public input period to redo the graduation requirements. That is what's at stake right now. And uh, we're they're wrapping up their public input periods. At least they're um, they had regional meetings uh, that they restarted again last winter you know, in the winter of you know recently, and they're wrapping up the final kind of public stakeholder meetings, which was like 200 people, and I was facilitating one of the breakout groups of roughly five people. I was expecting seven, but whatever. I think it was seven at the end of the day. Anyway, general consensus among and uh, so I was uh, a group of higher education people. It was business leaders in higher education in this section of a public, big public meeting over Zoom, of course. It was easier that way. You can get a lot more participation that way. The general consensus among higher education types is to have, and this, I'm pleased because this is my position too, that we need portfolio-based assessments where students do projects based on their interests and where they want to go in life. And the projects can also be, you know, have a criteria of, you know, basic citizenship, financial literacy things. You know, the project can be this, project can be that. So there can be types of projects that need to be included. But generally, the students figure out what the projects will be as they go and uh, based on their interests. And those projects are then, can then be judged by a panel of teachers. And the portfolio can be built over their entire career as students, not just year to year, school to school but it's something they carry with them and can actually use as part of basically it will be their resume because usually once you get into the workforce, everything you've done in school suddenly means jack nothing. Anyway, back to the topic at hand, which are TERFs, uh, TERFs in the Green Party, TERFs in the UK, and general trans rights issues. Uh, first, I want to hit really quickly, it will be quick, a paper published by Cultural Anthropology I was able to download it all, did not read it, unfortunately. Um, sorry, I was, I'm a poor host. I didn't, I didn't do the homework. I didn't read it. Too much else going on with my life. 
but it is called Deep in the Brain, Identity and Authenticity, uh, Periodic Gender Transition. That means, you know, kids under 18. And that's one of the things that gets, uh, you know, think of the children. These these children, they're transitioning very young or they're, they're figuring out their gender identity as they hit puberty or even before they hit puberty, but or they delay puberty so they can figure out whether or not they're the right gender uh, or how they will present because these things can be... Uh, so anyway, I'm just going to read the abstract, uh, which is, you know, the summary. Based on an ethno- ethnography of clinical practices, you know, survey, around gender non-conforming and transgender children in the U.S., this article explores the cultural and scientific notions of identity that shape this field. It examines the practice of diagnosing true gender identity in the clinic and situates the search for the foundation of identity in the inner depths of the self and in children as harmingers of authenticity as part of a broader cultural history. It addresses the scientific substantiation of the faith in innateness, that they are born this way, as well as the interiority, which is that gender identity comes from within, uh, or the, you know, the interiority, meaning that identity comes from within, as well as, its, as, well as their political appeal. This article challenges the often taken for granted association of science with materialism and the distribution of matter idea along with a nature culture axis, meaning that like, you know, nature versus nurture, you know, what determines someone's identity? Is it how they're brought up or is it their genes? So this article kind of goes into the problems with just having this nature culture axis, you know, a line, like a number line. By demonstrating the idealism that drives uh, the sighting of identity in the brain, you know, saying that this is all materialistic, it's in the brain, it's neurochemicals, that that's actually kind of idealistic too, which is kind of how turfs come at things, saying they're mater- they're being the materialists, they're the ones looking at biology, and, and then biology is sex, and, and thus thinking of things as, sec- you know, it's a sexual determinism, or, sorry, or a biological determinism, or environmental de- determinism, which... It's all pretty dangerous to do, but not just dangerous. It's it's inaccurate. It's not really good to do just one type of, you know, de- any kind of determinism is kind of a problem. Why? So here's what they discuss. Finally, uh, uh, they question the assumption that it is the appeal of nature and biology that underlies the cultural att- attachment to entities such as the gene and the brain as locations for where identity comes from. Rather than a nature-culture dyad, you know, duo, or, you know, a dialectic between the two, a relationship between nature and culture, this article argues that the it's more of an internal-external dyad, that more, uh, it's this paradigm that accurately captures and explains this cultural attachment, meaning I'm this gender identity regardless of what organs I have. That's kind of interesting. Kind of reminds me also of uh, when I took aesthetics. Aesthetics, the um, philosophical study of beauty, like what makes something beautiful. And uh, the professor there had his theory of beauty was also using this kind of dyad, uh, that there are experience, we have experiences and we can objectively talk about them in terms of how they this experience is an internal experience or this experience is an external experience, or at least that's one of the axes. He had a number of axes that uh, something's pleasurable versus painful, or, you know, it's just a way of talking about like you could measure 
aesthetic experiences that you know walking you know, like experiencing the smell of garbage is a very strong aesthetic experience but it's you know it's one of disgust but it's still an aesthetic experience also looking at a beautiful symmetrical building is an aesthetic experience but depending on one's internality uh, internal culture you know it's it could be boring okay a lot of different um topics flying about there hope i get across what uh why i started with this because i'm going to go about I may return to this one. I have in front of me an article. Yeah, I guess it's an article. And it is written, it's by, it's a site called 4W, which is, I would consider a, a turf site. Uh, for turf, it's turf news. And there's, instead of reading this and trying to debunk it, because I haven't done the research, so to speak, that's not the kind of show this is. The articles are the research, uh, which is, of course, makes me on Tim Pool-level journalism here. Uh, There are streams where they go through an article like this and go through all of the inaccurate things about it, not just because they're misrepresenting the reality of situations, like when, you know, someone's like, hey, they kicked me. It's like, what do you mean they kicked you? And and, and when you actually look at what happened, they didn't actually get kicked (laughs) or something. In this case, it's Oregon teachers who have been reprimanded uh, for speaking out about gender identity politics. You know, they put out resolutions and they create their own little organization to basically resolve the, the transgender issue. And it's like it's like saying there's a problem that needs to be solved. Like uh, there's a, there needs to be a final solution to trans kids uh, or something, you know. But uh, they got a lot of pushback, you know, and they're like, we're being persecuted. And we're being ostracized. And it all sounds really, you know, if, if you read enough of their content, you really do get like this. When you look at one point of view and one point of view only, you can really always kind of say like, oh, yeah, that God, these these trans activists truly are horrible people, a force of violence and, and hate. And they're the really villains in this story. But that's never really what's happening. But I can't accurately portray this. So I'm going to move on to. Actually, uh, better. Well, I, actually, I do have both sides here, so I can accurately explain what I'm cover what I'm talking about. First, this is stronger uh, turfism, so to speak, is stronger in the UK, and thus I will turn to a Guardian piece in their sports blog section, an article more than nine months old. It tells me yes, because I saved, like I said, I saved all of these in the last two years at least. Um, this is from June 2021, but this is a debate, whatever, it's a public conversation that has not yet been resolved um, and uh, has been going for the last few years. It is transgenders in sports, the trans the trans in sports. So here is, I'm going to read it in full. Maybe I'll, you know, transition over, trans myself over to a funny voice territory. I'm not sure. So it's uh, by Tanya Alfred. By conflating gender and sex, we undermine sporting competition. Now, this is the thing that's mentioned by the gender critical over and over again, that what my side, the trans side, the, well, the leftist side, I will blatantly say, is that we are conflating gender and sex, which to me is a mischaracterization. I don't know where what they're talking about, that they're conflating gender and sex. But I suppose what they're really referring to is why, like the, the original thing I started with last in the last hour, that 
the courts ruled that, you know, by discriminating someone based on their gender role or their gender presentation, it is it also counts as sex discrimination because you're discriminating based on a sex role or their what their perceived sex is. To say that perception is as important as the reality. Because when it comes to social issues, it is as important. So we're always conflating gender and sex in, in, a, in a fact that they're both like a realm of to, to give people rights, you know, gender rights and sex rights. And it's actually, it seems really patriarchal to me or regressive to say that sex and gender are the same thing. To say that if you have this sex, you must have this gender. You must have these gender roles, or if not gender roles, but you must have this gender expression. Why? Because it hurts the kids somehow. And again, it goes back to it hurts the kids because of this cherry-picked like example, which is just anecdotes and not real data. So fairness, okay, but now let's talk about the sports, uh, where again, it's like the data doesn't support what this article is going to, what this opinion piece is going to lay out. But let me go through it anyway. Fairness is at the heart of sport, and without separate categories for the sexes, there would be no women in Olympic finals. You know, this is the, the straw man that's painted. So what is fairness? In sport, everything. From childhood, we come to see the head start and the playground race, the shove in the gold mouth, a rogue thumb on the egg, as unjust and quickly shout, Oi! Object! I guess she's talking about British sports. Maybe these are all rugby terms. The same sense of probidity works its way up into professional sport. Sandpapering a cricket ball, not fair. Boxing with loaded gloves, not fair. International misrepresentation in paramilitic classification, not fair. Colluding with betting syndicates to fix a result, not fair. Doping, not fair. We classify our sports in order to pitch like against like and keep people safe. Yes, the, the zebras must stay with the zebras, the lions with the lions, the hyenas with the hyenas. Anyway, every heavyweight boxers never fight flyweights. From puberty, the sexes compete separately in most sports most of the time. These are long-accepted norms. Or were. The times are changing. Laurel Hubbard, 43, is poised to become the first transgender Olympian after being picked for New Zealand's weightlifting team, bubbling up to be one of Tokyo's big stories. This fixes the spotlight on to whether trans women have an unfair advantage over biological women and pits those sometimes friends, sometimes foes, inclusion and fairness. By conflating gender and sex, I would argue we fudge the very reason we have sex categories in sports, the male performance advantage. Without a separate category for females, Females. By the way, this is a common joke amongst my type that uh, uh, instead of saying women, uh, regressive people say use female. Females, uh, like uh, Ferengis. Uh, there would be no women in Olympic finals, even in. But see, this is where, like, um, say they're conflating uh, sex and gender because see, when we use women, woman, and man, we're referring to sex. If we say male and female. Or referring to gender. They use them interchangeably, which causes me confusion. Just as we can conf- cause regressive people confu- uh, uh, reactionaries confusion. 
So even in the 100 meter, one of the events with the smallest performance gap, approximately 10,000 men worldwide have professional bests faster than the current Olympic female champion, Elaine Thompson Hurrah. And it's not just track and field. While the smallest attainment gap between the sexes comes in running, rowing, and swimming events, uh, which is between 11 to 13 percent, this moves up to 16 to 22 percent in track cycling, between 29 percent to 43 percent when it comes to bowling, cricket, balls, and weightlifting. The difference in punch power between men and women is a whopping 162 percent, not then to be sniffed at. But the International Olympic Committee, and by the way, they're important because the standards they set for the Olympic Games become basically the standards for all sports. They tweaked their guidelines in 2015 to allow athletes such as Hubbard to compete in the women's category, provided their total testosterone level in serum is kept below 10 nanomoles per liter for at least 12 months. Transgender men face no restrictions in the male category for obvious reasons. Oh, okay, so at least you don't have a problem with that. So increasingly, however, research is showing that these testosterone guidelines do not guarantee the fair competition the IOC was hoping for. Well, this is a that's your opinion, man. So anyway, Ross Tucker, a sports scientist and expert on testosterone advantage in sport, successfully sums it up. That lowering of testosterone is almost completely ineffective in taking away the biological differences between Males and females. There is just no proof that reducing testosterone takes away the advantage of muscle mass, strength, lean body mass, muscle size, or bone density. I don't know what basis there is to make that statement, by the way, folks. I'm pretty sure that how much estrogen or testosterone you have, well, I mean, well, actually, it is all pretty much relative, on the other hand. So, but... When people talk of doing HRT, replacing their hormones, you know, they go on estrogen or they take testosterone, they talk of how, I'm talking about trans people here, they talk of how their muscle mass changed and how their bone density changed and how everything freaking changed. And this guy's saying, like, oh, no, you change your hormones and nothing changes. Now, hormone levels for somebody is the normal amount for that person, right? There is no, like normal male amount of testosterone. Like there was this thing where like these five guys got testosterone tests and they were all wildly different. And it's like, oh, you have 200, but I have 500. I'm like, there's, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So, and it also varies day to day. So the most common argument used in favor of inclusion is that sport is all about natural advantage and that being a trans woman is just another factor to add to the list alongside Michael Phillips' size in favor of inclusion is that sport is all about natural advantage and that being a trans woman is just another factor to add to a long list. Like, right, right, like how Michael Phelps had large feet and double-jointed ankles, and that made him a very great swimmer, so he won all the medals, a lot of medals. So the problem with this argument is that we don't compete according to foot size, but we well, why shouldn't we why shouldn't we have swimmers compete based on foot size then? But we do protect the integrity of women's sport because the advantage gained from male puberty is so comprehensive in terms of speed, power, strength. Again, this is just a, a claim at that point claim that needs evidence. So male puberty gave him a much bigger uh, talking about uh, Phelps. His male puberty gave him a much bigger advantage across the board. At the Beijing Olympics, he won the 200-meter freestyle, breaking the world record. Frederica, 
a, a woman swimmer who broke woman's world record at the same distance uh, finished at 1.54 seconds versus Phelps 1.42 seconds, a time that wouldn't have got her into the men's semifinals. It wasn't internalized misogyny slowing her down. Okay. Serena Williams told David Letterman that were she should play were she to play Andy Murray, I would lose six oh six oh in maybe ten minutes. Male pu- well, of course that's just a claim. Again, it's like well she hasn't. Male puberty and androgens give an advantage in a different stratosphere. Which to me is like saying, Yeah, men are inherently stronger and different than women. And thus uh, you know which which is an inherently anti feminist statement. To say that there can be no equity between men and women. Men are just stronger. They should just do all the strong jobs. Like, you know, no women garbage collectors. Women shouldn't be able to do these things that, you know, lift more. (laughs) Even though then by lifting more, they get more back injuries. So they're not inherently stronger then. Is the result of actually including women in any kind of job. Whether it involves lifting things or not. So that uh, that's my take. That it's inherently anti-feminist to just talk of like how much stronger men are. It's just that, the, that we have to keep things separate. Gotta keep things separate for the sake of safety and fairness. Wasn't this all probably said about blacks and in, in sports? You know, we gotta keep them separate because blacks are inherently faster. They're all faster than black white men, so we it wouldn't be fair if they were allowed to compete. They would take over those sports. Ugh. So anyway, given the safety issues in combat, collision, and some team sports, given the hidden exclusions, those women and girls who decide that a sport now isn't for them, and the not-so-hidden ones, a 20-year-old Italian who would have gone to her first Olympics if Hubert hadn't been selected, which is like saying, oh, uh, Hubert, uh, Hubbard, you know, the trans woman, isn't a real woman, so doesn't count. Now there's this other woman who wasn't selected. Uh, yeah. The American cyclist Veronica Ivy, previously known as Rachel McKinnon, says hang the heartache, trans women are women, and should simply be able to self self-identify themselves into the woman's category at any every level. This argument has got some traction. In which case, why bother having sex categories for sport at all? Okay. So just put everyone in together and watch biological males win the lot. I'd argue the opposite. The science is young. Stop, breathe. Trans women should be able to live their sporting lives to the fullest. So if research can find a way for them to participate in female sports without advantage, brilliant. Until then, remove the idea of gender altogether and revert to sex-based categories. A female category, get this, an open category that can cater for trans men who have taken testosterone, trans women and men. So, so trans men can still be in the male category, but it's women who need to be protected from trans women. And that, that's an open category. You have a women's category and an everybody else category. Uh, that doesn't sound like equitable intersectional feminism to me. So, but above all, there needs to be a realization that you can't always have it all. Just as women and trans men can't dominate in men's sports and men can't 
enter women's sport, you know, because trans women are actually men. Trans women shouldn't be able to push open a door that was locked for a reason. It isn't fair. Okay. So besides my little ramblings, now for an actual retort, via Facebook page, uh, which I will link in the show notes, but it's basically a post made by someone saying trans girls competing is not unfair. So as a result of our, uh, of things I just read and that kind of av- advocacy, at least 25 U.S. states are proposing anti-trans sports bills, most of which target trans girls. Even folks who claim they are not transphobic and support trans people take issue when a trans girl wants to compete with other girls. This is often bigotry masked as caring about fairness. So let's break this down. Quote, it's not transphobic, it's about fairness. Trans women are biological males and shouldn't compete with women. So let's start with language. If you claim you're not transphobic, then you will use the most respectful terminology and call trans women what they are, women. To, um, to put my spin on it, or a spin I've heard, that it's, it's a matter of being a type of woman. Okay, type of woman is a subcategory, but still under the umbrella of being women. So calling them biological males is not the is not only potentially inaccurate because biological sex is not actually that simple, but it's also transphobic. If you need to differentiate trans and cis women, say that trans and cis women. If you need to talk about folks with higher levels of testosterone, say that. If you need to talk about reproductive biology, then say that. Point two, quote, and by the way, it's it's starting with a statement and then it's rebutting it. Excluding trans girls protects girls' sport. Response, in order to exclude trans girls, there must be a method of verifying if someone is trans. Usually this is done through genital exams, hormone evaluation, and or genetic testing. Most bills propose Accusation-based testing. When someone is accused of being trans, they are subject to testing. This not only demonizes and weaponizes transness, but it also endangers all girls and women. That is, any girl accused of being transgender, you know, because maybe they're muscular or they're buff or they are tall, that can be checked. Or maybe they just have a bony chin or a bony face, or they have some masculine features. Not only is this incredibly evasive, genital exams are wholly unnecessary, having or not having genitals, male genitals, has no effect on performance in sport. Having a penis has no effect anyway. But it also is degrading to all women. That is, at what point is a girl good enough that she will then be accused of being transgender? How masculine can a girl be or look before she is accused of being transgender? This proposed gender verification not only symmetrically enforces the policing of all women's bodies, but also does so through demonizing and weaponizing transness. And this is kind of the thing with with the turf opinion pieces or news stories even, that they're always leaving out the actual material effects and consequences of what they're advocating for. Because to them, the ends justify the means. And the ends is... Erasing transness, erasing queerness, erasing the non-conforming. You're a man or a woman. 
Because otherwise, that's the only way. How do you know who the enemy is if you don't know who's a man? <laughs> that's what I hear. Because, you know, in their ideology, men are just evil beings who can do no right. On to point three, trans women have higher levels of testosterone, so it's unfair, as mentioned before. So the response to this would be, at non-elite levels, it does not matter. We're talking about children who just want to kick a ball around with their friends. Most athletes are not Olympians, national team members, or even going to compete in regional-level meets. Though I'm not sure this is great rhetoric because, well, anyone who's in sport is, like, and serious about it wants to go up to those levels, which is the argument they make. But in that point, it's all about, like, winning competitions and besides, like, saying, I'm the best. <sighs> I think we're in a we're moving in towards a society where that matters less and less. Example. Team sports are just becoming less popular. There is just less and less participation in team sports on the high school and other levels and lower than that. Why? Cuz we're all gaming. We all want to do more cooperative type of games, uh not competitive games. You know, when I play tennis, you know, because it's like one-on-one, it's not really part of a team, it's, it's for the fun of it. And, and so does most other sporting activities. Anyway, these are just kids playing sports with their friends. And in, on all elite-level sports, such as those governed by the NCAA or the International Olympic Committee, testosterone levels must be regulated for trans women to compete. You know, that regulation is already happening. It's, you know, but, you know, the opinion piece argued this isn't enough or it's not working or something. But the evidence, and just as much reporting, if not more, reports that it, it has the intended effect. The intended um, fairness is there. But, but, but going through testosterone-driven puberty still makes them taller, even if they're on hormone blockers. Let's continue with that. On to point four, then. But even if testosterone levels are regulated, trans women go through testosterone-driven puberty. They're taller and bigger. Well, first off, many trans girls take puberty, meaning hormone blockers, and therefore have never experienced this testosterone-driven puberty, and this argument is null. But what about those who have? Well, let's think about a 6-foot, 3-inch cisgender woman who plays basketball. People will say, damn, she was made for basketball. Now let's say there is a 6-foot trans woman People often immediately say that's unfair. The reality is these accusations are often transphobic. They're sexist and misogynist because a trans woman's gender expression is often accused of being too masculine or manly. And a lot of the time, it's also racist. It can be. Because many of these trans women who have been attacked are black and brown, which is not a coincidence. This is the repeated shaming and policing of black and brown women's bodies in sports. And this is not new. Think of Serena Williams, uh, that's the second time she's been evoked, and many other black women whose bodies have been repeatedly policed in the sport. Point five, trans women have unfair biological advantages. Don't forget that biological differences exist everywhere in sports. No two athletes' bodies look the same. No two cisgender women's bodies look the same. And they shouldn't have to. The shortest guy on my swim team is five foot six. The tallest guy was six foot seven. That means the shortest guy was more than a foot shorter than that tallest guy. Is that height a biological advantage? Of course it is. But is it unfair 
and meriting of disqualification? Of course not. It's just a biological difference. It's also worth noting that the guy who was five foot six was one of the fastest swimmers we had, and he was the captain in his senior year. So yes, trans women absolutely can exhibit biological diversity, just like everyone else. I'm not transphobic. I just care about fairness. Point six. In the Women's Sports Foundation 2020 report, Chasing Equity on Barriers to Sport for Women, the inclusion of trans women is not mentioned once. Trans women do not threaten the fabric of women's sports. Excluding and attacking trans women does. That is, so many folks don't care about sports or fairness until a trans woman woman wants to play. And then suddenly, they are massive sports fans. If folks truly want to bring fairness to the forefront, they'd fight against the main barrier to access for sports, which is, say it with me, fellow leftists, socioeconomic disparity. Class. Often intertwined with systemic oppressions such as race. This will be the last. So it's a call to action. I don't know if I have to go through it, but South Carolina Senate just passed such a bill that bans trans girls from all from all sports and require all kids competing in sports to disclose their genetic and reproductive biology to the government. So much for freedom. <laughs> Republicans loving freedom. They just want they just want to they just want you just have to register your danglies with them. Okay. Holy moly to my wow. I did not expect that to take that long. Okay, so I'm going to have to steam through this. First, um, to pink news. Going to the UK, Sayon Barry thinks you should reconsider being in the Green Party if you don't believe trans rights or human rights. Uh, the rest of the hour, I will mostly be hitting on uh, trans or turfs in the Green Party and how one of the things that maybe, I mean, we had a lot of factionalism in the Green Party and it did really hurt us. Uh, factionalism does, in fact, you know, party discipline, lack of party discipline really hurts. And it was mostly through the electoral strategies I've discussed over and over in other episodes. So I consider the turf split in the Green Party to be very, very minor uh, lack of, you know, factionalism compared to the factionalism of we got to vote for Biden to get rid of Trump. Uh, the Green shouldn't run a presidential candidate or the Green shouldn't. I don't know, run against Democrats at all or something. I, we can go over that over and over. But now we're just talking about that because, you know, these are radical feminists. They have leftist politics in many other domains, such as economic, which is why it's really important to point out that, look, if you really want to help women, it, don't fight trans women or trans folks. Just keep fighting for economic equality or uh, economic justice. With us, us being the rest of us woke, transgenderism leftists. But no, that as soon as this disagreement comes forward, it's like all of that other stuff, the, the economic justice, democracy, it all doesn't seem to matter. It's something to split. It's something to leave and fight over. So here's an example of that. So Sian Barry, the Green Party candidate for mayor of London, has said a a commission and action plan on trans rights will be one of the first things she'll do if elected. This is back in February of last year. 
So on Wednesday, the Green Party co-leader, who is vying to replace Mayor Khan in the May election, pledged that if elected, she would set up a commission on the needs of trans Londoners and create an action plan to address barriers to health care, employment, and housing. Her strategy, she said, is to make London the most trans-inclusive city in the world. So discussing a timescale of her plan, there is no reason why something like this should take more than a few months. Just a commission kind of thing, you know? Since Barry joined the London Assembly in 2016, she said she has seen the conversation around trans rights move in the wrong direction. Quoting her, when I first came to the London Assembly, so she is an elected green, I thought we were in a very good position with trans rights. Sea changes had happened, that trans people were being normalized and that we were doing a tidying up exercise. So I came into the Assembly with this mission to clear the final thing and just push the final barriers that were there. She said she worked on issues like expanding gender options on forms with greater London authorities, but that now things have moved the wrong direction. Since I've been in London Assembly, there's been a growth in a particularly toxic transphobia. Attempts being made at a national level to roll back trans rights and objections to things that I would never have imagined would be objected to, things like provision of gender-neutral toilets. It just seems like common sense to me. Now, there's been an enormous amount of toxic rhetoric that I do not like. I just think it's upsetting that we've seen everyone's human rights pushed back on, but it's particularly upsetting to me how toxic the attempts are that are being made at the moment to alienate and exclude trans people. Okay, I need to work really fast, but this is just, you get the sense of this. Um, things are really bad in the UK. Uh, this candidate, uh, Green candidate, you know, is mentioning it. Quick run through of the disaccreditation of the Georgia Green Party. So this is something I've referred to here and there in the last, particularly last year, and uh, but I haven't really gotten into the details because I haven't really had it in front of me. Now I do. Here is a statement put out by the Green Party of Washington State Coordinating Council, which voted to direct its National Committee delegates to vote yes on a proposal, 1062, which discredits, you know, it basically says the Georgia Green Party no longer part of the National Greens. During the course of the discussion debate, it has become clear that the platform planks, which the Georgia Green Party adopted regarding queer LGBTQ plus community, particularly trans women and children, are not in alignment with the positions of the Green Party of Washington State. And so they basically say, you know, this is why we're going to vote. We agree with our colleagues in Wisconsin when they ask, should the Green Party be a safe space for intolerance? And we agree with their conclusion. If so, then we can no longer claim to be a tolerant organization, and the progressives and leftists we are hoping to recruit will find another political home. Therefore, the only tenable choice is to repudiate intolerance, you know, to say that TERFs are being bigots, that they are being reactionaries. We spent years hoping the National Lavender Green Caucus and the Georgia Green Party would be able to resolve this issue. The Lavender Caucus is the Trans Caucus. And they were not able to do so. We are not being tasked to resolve the issue and determine the future of our party. That is a party that supports trans rights. Here is the National um, going to the Green U.S. site, which has the full background of the vote of this resolution. That's the proposal. 1062, which describes the Georgia Green Party. So here's the background. This committee asserts that the Georgia Green Party has established a pattern of undemocratic actions that violate the 10 values of grassroots democracy, as well as exhibiting bigoted and anti-transgender positions that violate the key value of social justice and equal opportunity. Therefore, the Georgia Green Party is not organized. 
or run in accordance with our values. So the Georgia Green Party passed a series of resolutions and state platform amendments at their uh, Bolier State Convention February 2020 that would seek to restrict the full legal and political rights of transgender people. It was like a, a turf manifesto. So at that meeting, they endorsed the Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights, which, among other things, states that, quote, men who claim a female gender identity are being enabled to access opportunities and protections set aside for women. This constitutes a form of discrimination against women and endangers women's fundamental rights to safety, dignity, and equality. Conversely, the Green Party platform states, the Green Party affirms the rights of all persons to self-determination with regard to gender identity and sex. We affirm the right of choosing non-binary and gender-fluid identification also. We therefore support the right of individuals to be free from coercion and involuntary assignment of gender or sex. While the platform is not a binding document, it does represent a democratically ratified consensus of views regarding transgender persons. It is often a fair representation of the values that newcomers to the party would expect to see lived out in state and local parties. The Greens... Green members across the country accept the platform as one of the key recruitment tools at our disposal. So at that February 2020 meeting, only nine members were reportedly present, which appeared to be at least a subset of the state coordinating council. The absence of rake and file members to vote on such a seismic platform amendment lends the appearance of only a select group were invited to weigh in on the decision. In fact, no state meeting was ever announced on Facebook, and a method which is, in fact, a method that most state parties use to cast a wider net and attract more attendees to state meetings. There is a page announcing this meeting buried in the website with no other way to navigate to it, though. So according to the last known bylaws of the Georgia, Georgia Green Party, quote, the convention may establish organizing policy, and you know, it goes through the rigmarole. So uh, let's see. They endorse the thing. So um, the accreditation committee has made repeated requests that the Georgia Green Party to provide a membership roster or the number of due-paying me members as well as a current copy of their bylaws. After um, their, um, the AC's vote, accreditation committee, whether to recommend this, uh, their disaccreditation was initiated, meaning we're going to investigate, Georgia Green Party finally responded on the po this point that the Georgia Secretary of State has a copy of their bylaws on file. However... You know, it goes through, basically, the runaround. In the meantime, there is no evidence that the Georgia Green Party is empowering members of the queer community. In fact, in testimony from former member Abby Thatcher of Savannah, who is a transgender woman unchecked, that, uh, that unchecked trans misogynistic uh, commentary from the state committee members was a regular, regular occurrence. Additionally, uh, Thatcher testified that after repeated requests, uh, Georgia Green Party would not cancel her dues and continue to withdraw them from her bank account. In the meantime, the National Lavender Green Caucus, in an effort to return Georgia's platform to a version more in line with the Nationals, requested mediation via a dispute resolution committee. Ultimately, from the initial acceptance of mediation, uh, approximately April 16, 2020, and after repeated instances of communication through the assigned mediator, Georgia Green Party failed to com complete the process of mediation and dialogue. And then they ignored their final and third notice that was issued October. So this is over a whole year. So the following is a list of events and deadlines that was observed by the accreditation committee 
as part of this grievance process. So those through basically, you know, list of events. So there's a kind of a paper trail. Thus, it proposes that they be discredited, which they were, which is thus why I read the Washington State uh, announcement of that. Now, last, I'm going to round out the episode. I may actually go long, but I want to read um, this final few paragraphs that I will leave you with this final word. He's the Green Party organizer in North Carolina, Antonio Nage. read him before. really like his words. Okay. Final word. The oppressed need solidarity and power, not protection. So this is on building mass power versus sex-based rights. The concept of sex-based rights, such as those espoused in the Declaration of Women's Sex-Based Rights, is inherently right-wing. Evidently, the vast majority of women seem to agree, given the fact that it is several years old and still has less than 20,000 international signees. How is this concept of sex-based rights right-wing or reactionary? Question mark. This manipulative obfuscation of what is basically anti-trans fear-mongering upholds the concept that equal rights protections uphold special rights for women that are being eroded. Would someone call affirmative action and the Civil Rights Act race-based rights? That would totally play into the agenda of racists, wouldn't it? This rhetoric also helps to support the right-wing narrative that equal rights protections and affirmative action are somehow taking away from the rights of hard-working white people, etc. It's the exact same style of propaganda as the anti-trans activists, except white conservatives are saying that their rights are being eroded. When serious radicals stand up to defend trans people from this warped version of feminism, we are summarily labeled as IDPOL liberals cancer culture fascists, and social justice warriors, just like people who defend the BLM movement are labeled the same way. This is classic right-wing propaganda to lump people fighting for liberation in with the most opportunistic or undisciplined elements of the struggle. This serves as a convenient distraction from their own bigotry and opportunism, just as only a tiny percentage of white supremacists openly say that they don't like black people. Even many KKK members say they simply want segregation of the races to protect the survival of the white race, their race-based rights, if you will. Now, of course, not everyone who injects themselves into the BLM struggle or whatever struggle is always doing the right thing or without contradiction or representing the right interests. We have seen the base opportunism and tokenism of both ruling capitalist parties in this regard. That is different one that many of us have been involved with as well. However, I know one thing, that people who stand against the movement for black and brown lives are overwhelmingly reactionary in their politics. This is why I'm a socialist. I do not feel that a society based upon economic and productive planning for people and planet is in competition with my own rights. Quite the opposite. Such a means of social organization is key to winning permanent liberation. The rights of everyone do not compete with my rights in such a system that is not based upon profit over cooperation. The solution proposed is one where we punch down to protect our rights within this exploitative system under capitalism, which is a dictatorship of Wall Street. All of our rights are ultimately on borrowed time until the point at which we challenge that order. Then all of these constitutional protections are easily discarded. One needs to only look at the militarized response to home foreclosure resistance and the violent crackdowns 
against Occupy Wall Street. During the last economic crisis, to see just the tip of the iceberg of what's in store for us when we do rise up en masse. So when one class of people wins rights against the exploitative interests of the ruling class, we all do. Such equal rights strengthen solidarity. Punching down at a population that is presently less than 1%, referring to trans folks, as if they are seeking to take away or claim the rights of women erodes solidarity. You don't have to personally agree. You just need to understand that solidarity is what is paramount. The historical foundation of capitalist rule rests upon the utilization of oppression of women, races, and nationalisms to culturally and very intentionally divide and conquer. It's interesting that the focus of the anti-trans activists are those without the social power or material means to uphold any of these systemic pillars of exploitation and oppression. You know, they just see banks waving rainbow flags, and this apparently makes them on the same team. But as I mentioned with the the kink at Pride, that's a political struggle, too, that it doesn't erode it. You know, it doesn't take anything from us. Cisgender women and trans women and trans men, as well as the entire queer spectrum, are all targeted by the patriarchy and are all subjected to patriarchal violence. The funny thing here is that folks who use the shield of sex-based rights against trans people, the same way people who are racist and say that white people are under attack, billionaires are under attack, are on the same side of this issue as the most vile anti-woman sexist in our society. It almost seems as if they are proudly so. Easier to punch down than to engage in the long, hard work of building mass solidarity. Mic drop. So uh, if it needs a bearing, uh, the audio is going to be different here because this is future, or rather, editing Daniel. Just wanted to repeat the thesis of that statement, uh, that little uh, screed there, which is that the oppressed need solidarity, not derision and, uh, and what have you. Uh, or protection, rather. And that protection, uh, the oppressed, includes me, you, and anybody who doesn't have a million dollars worth in assets. Uh, it does mean women. It means cis women. It means trans women. It means everybody. It means men, cis, trans, what have you. So it can also tie back uh, into the beginning when I mentioned the Will Smith-Chris Rock slap in that what, what Jada... Well, rather, what the wife of Will Smith needed was not his protection via a slap to the face and, you know, standing up for her with violence, uh, whether it be, you know, just personal violence, uh, but solidarity, which could have been in the form of mentioning it during his speech or something like that, or a statement afterwards and addressing it that way. I mean, he had a platform. But this is all covered by many uh, some other commentators, one of which I will be linking in the uh, show notes. But I can summarize that. Let's see a uh, one kind of note that you know the defending of uh, your woman sure looks like patriarchal violence, and that kind of violence, you know, that whole Will Smith just needed to feel manly or feel in control of the situation, and he did that with a slap. Uh, which, of course, is what any man uh, perpetrating domestic violence or sexual violence against women is also doing. So it's all, you know, uh, somehow it all looks like patriarchal violence to me. Uh, The other side of it is that, you know, this is not, in fact, protecting women, just as 
bashing and suppressing or oppressing trans women or trans people is not protecting women uh, at all. Uh, because what really protects us is solidarity. Solidarity with workers, solidarity with uh, the non-conforming. Uh, and that helps us all. It does not uh, hurt our rights. In fact, it, it enhances them. Uh, it makes them more than privileges. So with that, I will uh, round up the show. Just want to give my profound thanks for listening. You can send feedback or encouragement, follow and share me on social my socials. That's on Facebook, a three left show, Twitter. You can email me at three left show. That's lefts, plural three, numeral three, lefts show at Gmail. Also materially, you can find me on Patreon and LibrePay to support the show materially. Uh, that means with cash, of course. The full archive and more episodes are at threelefts.news. And the show can also be found on all podcasts and music applications. You can also support this radio station, WCAALP, at grandarts.org. And of course, the most important thing is to put the ideas, thinking, and projects talked about here and practice yourself. So be well, keep it, and keep waving the flags of the three lefts. Now, don't you think it's crazy?